the word of our Lord from Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with all of the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, to all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren of the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know this, that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, as though God left it up to him. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that 
from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Holy Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word through your Holy Spirit. Would you speak into our hearts and our minds? Give us strength. Give us joy. Even in the midst of our suffering. We pray in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. The theme of Paul's letter is packed into a single word. Rejoice. He says the word rejoice in this four chapter epistle 12 times. In addition to that, he uses the term joy four other times. This letter is all about rejoicing. It is all about the joy that Paul has in God and the joy to which God has called the Philippians in Christ. Every single chapter is littered with joy. And with invitations to rejoice. In fact, the letter itself is written as a, as a, a thank you. A, a sort of thank you. A, a sort of celebration. Because the Philippians have been so faithful in Paul's ministry to the Gentile world. He calls them partners from the very beginning even to that day. And so he writes them to say thank you and to let them know that he in the midst of his suffering is rejoicing and he invites them to rejoice with him. Last night we moved back our clocks. So, of course, the days are now getting shorter and the days seem more urgent. It's getting darker earlier. Life is about to start getting busier. You know what I'm talking about. There are things to do. Stuff to buy. People to see. We've already been asked, what are y'all's plans for Thanksgiving? What are y'all doing for Christmas? There's still some time to plan. Some time to make arrangements. But already, as the days start getting shorter and as night starts drawing sooner in the day the busyness the stress all starts making its way to the surface we find ourselves gearing up to finish out the calendar year counting down the days to Christmas and counting down the days to January 1st a new year seasons are coming that typically are associated with joy though unfortunately joy often escapes us during these fast and fleeting days. You know, we're 
hearing the music about joy, we're singing about joy, we're talking about joy, and we're as angry and stressed out as anyone. The church's liturgical year is also even more suddenly drawing to its end. On December 3rd, the first Sunday of Advent, we'll begin a new year of worship as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus. On the way, we'll come across Thanksgiving, trying our best not to forget about Turkey Day. What with all the Christmas decor already put out, already put out even before Halloween. And the Christmas music already on the air. Bill knows what I'm talking about. He pointed it out to me. Some uh, Mannheim steamroller, right, if I'm not mistaken. On the radio, already. Typically, when we think of Thanksgiving... We think of things for which we are thankful, right? In fact, I often refer to the old hymn, Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, how's that go? Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your, and you will be, you'll be surprised at what the Lord has done, I think. That's how it goes. Haven't sung it in a long time. Normally, we think about those things for which we are thankful when we think about thanksgiving. But what if we can be thankful even in the midst of circumstances for which we are certainly not thankful? On top of that, what if we can get to the place where we are compelled to give thanks to God, to rejoice in Him, even when life hurts, even when pain hurts, stings even when loss leaves us empty and even when things just aren't fair and definitely aren't right Paul sets the tone of his letter early on his words of kindness to the Philippians to them as partners in the gospel, he declares his great love for them and even his longing to see them. You can tell this is a, a good letter. This is going to be more positive than those letters to the Corinthians. Those devils. Am I right? <laughs> he expresses his prayer in their behalf. What God would do and the work that God would be about in their lives, especially in verses 9 through 11 we just read. And also, he sets his tone early on by his insistence upon rejoicing, even while he himself suffers. It's amazing. He does not. He, he does not shy away from the complexity and the difficulty of his own situation. He begins by greeting them as the bondservant of Christ. He begins by telling them and reminding them of his chains for the sake of the gospel. What suffering is Paul enduring? Well, for starters, he's writing while in prison. We don't really know where 
or even when because it happened so often. Paul was known to be on the wrong side of the law in ancient Rome. So he's writing from prison, from a prison cell, being chained up for his faithfulness to Jesus and his refusal to bow the knee to the powers of the world. But not only is Paul in prison, but he's also the target of ill will among so-called Christians. He says specifically that some are preaching in order to spitefully dig at him. He says that they are preaching out of envy for him and out of strife with him, hoping to add to his affliction. In some, he says, some of these are preaching out of selfish ambition. They see themselves as Paul's competitor. And so now that he's in jail, maybe he'll be humbled a bit and we can be elevated a little bit. We'll finally get what's coming to us as he gets what's coming to him. But Paul says even more about his suffering. He's facing the real possibility of death. He talks about the pros and cons. He begins almost like a a pro and con list. If I were to live on, I would consider it to be living as Christ in the world. Living as His ambassador. Doing His work. If I were to go on to be with Him, that would be far better for me. He says, I know you're praying for my deliverance and therefore I'm sure I will be delivered. But look, I don't know which I would rather choose. Do I choose to live on and minister for the sake of the church or do I go on to be with Jesus, which would be far better? says, I'm torn between the two possibilities. If I live on, it'll be to your advantage so that I might continue to invest in your life and in the life of your faith. And I'm convinced that's what will happen because God wants me to be of benefit to you. To be poured out as a drink offering for you. Just as Paul invites the Philippians to rejoice with him even while suffering, so also does Jesus, even in the midst of our suffering, invite us to rejoice in him, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why are we invited to rejoice, to give thanks, even while we suffer? Well, first, it's not because of suffering itself. We are not called to rejoice because of suffering. We are called to rejoice in spite of suffering. There's nothing inherently good in suffering. In fact, suffering is bad. It's not good. There's also nothing inherently virtuous about suffering. About being one who suffers. One who suffers is not inherently more virtuous than those who don't. While we suffer, we're not inherently more virtuous than we were when we weren't suffering. There is only 
virtue in suffering well. And so we're invited to rejoice, to give thanks, even while we suffer, not because there's some great thing about suffering, not because the suffering life is to be elevated, but because of what the Lord is able to do through those who suffer well. Think of the benefit that God brought to the world through the Apostle Paul suffering well. Paul mentions specifically that the whole palace guard in verse 13 of this first chapter, the whole palace guard has come to know of Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel. That's a pretty impressive witness. He'll later in chapter 4 send greetings from believers that are now in Caesar's household. That's kind of impressive. Paul's witness to the world, his witness to others, his witness to those outside the church, and his witness also to those within the church was dramatic because of Paul's willingness to submit himself to God, even in the midst of suffering. And by suffering, well. By rejoicing in Christ, even in the midst of his suffering. Even when life isn't working like it ought to have. Even when his plan is not working out as he planned. He says, I can rejoice because God is using me for the sake of others. Paul's ministry throughout the greater Gentile world of the Roman Empire was a ministry that was characterized by his willingness to endure hardship. For his endurance and willingness, even eagerness to endure suffering and sometimes even rejection. We typically think of Paul as having written most of the New Testament or, you know, almost every bit of it. He actually only wrote 12 of the epistles from the New Testament. That's a considerable amount. But Paul was the great apostle to the Gentile world, to those outside of Israel, those outside of the Jewish believers in Christ. And his apostleship was characterized by Paul's willingness to suffer well. Paul speaks also of the influence that he has on fellow believers as he suffers and suffers well. He rejoices because through his willingness to rejoice even in the midst of suffering... He says that there are others who are strengthened by him. Others who are willing to be more bold in their faith. More bold in their witness to the world. Because they are strengthened by seeing their brother Paul as he suffers. Paul makes that great declarative statement that Christ will be magnified in my body. Whether by life or by death.
Even today, we hear of Muslims coming to Christ in the Middle East in scores because of two primary witnesses to them. Dreams or visions of Christ and the love of Christ's disciples, especially seen in how well they suffer. How well they suffer together. How well they suffer for the sake of the world. In our communities, folks need to see a difference. They need to see a life that is characteristically and fundamentally different. Our joyful love is the most compelling witness we have to our neighbors. Otherwise, what makes us different? Is it just that we're convinced we're going to live on after we die? Or is there such a significant difference that Jesus is is able to make to our lives that the character and the, the, the behavior of our lives and the way we respond to trouble in life is fundamentally different than that of the world. I think you can tell that I'm convinced it's the latter, not the former. The hope of the gospel is not just life beyond the grave. The hope of the gospel is real life in this life because of Him who conquered the grave. Essentially, Paul is inviting us to surrender ourselves. Truly, our greatest most profound release or our greatest and most profound need is to release ourselves into God's hands whatever they might bring to resign ourselves to his goodness whatever that might mean it was through surrender that the world was saved. Self-sacrifice on a cross. As Paul makes clear to the Philippians, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It's as if Paul is saying, look, the cross is not just something for you to look to and be inspired by and be excited about. The cross is also there for you to remember what it looks like to empty yourself of all but love. What surrender looks like. What redemption and salvation looks like looks like it looks like death the death of self the death of self-interest the death of self-centeredness the death of having my own way and my own rights and my own desires both Paul and Peter 
in their New Testament epistles make it quite clear that as Jesus made it quite clear in the Gospels that those who follow Jesus faithfully will endure their share of suffering in this world. We should expect rejection and persecution. Don't think that we've progressed beyond it. The 1900s supposed to be the Christian century as was declared at the beginning of the 1900s. The Christian century, a century of peace, a century of love, a century of prosperity and liberty around the world. And it was the bloodiest century of persecution the world has ever seen. Rejection and persecution. Because of the state of the human heart, rejection and persecution are realities beyond which our society will never progress. So we should expect rejection and persecution. Not seeking it. To be sure, not seeking it. But surely expecting it. And enduring it well when it does come to our doorstep. But I like my rights. I like being comfortable. I can't live like that. I'm not Jesus. You're absolutely right. You can't live like that. But the Spirit of Christ can so fill you with Himself that He can live like this through you. Think of what Paul says about his love for the Philippians in verse 8. God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul was not some great reservoir of love in and of himself. His ability to care for others would have naturally been hampered by his concern for himself. But Paul had found the key to life. Really, the key to joy. Unless a grain of wheat falls down into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it will fall, and if it will die, it will also bear much fruit. You see, the key to life is dying to self. The key to joy is surrendering ourselves to Jesus. Surrendering ourselves to His will for our lives. Yes, the Spirit of Christ can so fill you with Himself that He, through you, can live a self-surrendered life. He can fill you. But first, He'll have to empty you of yourself. That brings up another benefit of suffering. Another thing that the Lord is able to do through those who suffer well. The blessing is not just for others who see our suffering, are challenged by it, encouraged by it, 
benefited by it or strengthened by it. No, we ourselves are also afforded the opportunity to be blessed by our own suffering. If we will allow God to use it to get us over ourselves. For otherwise, we will become a toxic vacuum of self. There is true joy to be found when we get beyond ourselves. Joy that we cannot even imagine. Joy that the world has no earthly idea about. Joy that the scriptures call joy unspeakable and full of glory. But it will require something of us. It will require that we give up the fight. That we quit the resistance. That we lay down our arms. In a word, surrender. That is the way to joy. Surrender. Let's pray.